Welcome to the Living Shelter Podcast, where we explore ways to create healthy, energy-efficient, and joyful places to live. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, a Pacific Northwest native and an architect with over 30 years' experience designing with a focus on sustainable options. Our goal at Living Shelter is to help you expand your toolkit so you can help build a resilient future that includes comfortable and sustainable places for all of us to live. Our guests share their years of experience in one or more of the many facets of the green and natural building industries, with topics from material choices for health and wellness to energy efficiency and regenerative site design, and some big picture ideas from thought leaders we think you'll find inspiring. In this episode of Living Shelter, we're going to talk with Lucia Athens, one of the West's leading voices on sustainable buildings and urban design. Lucia spent 10 years leading the City of Seattle's Green Building Program in the early aughts and then became the City of Austin, Texas's first Chief Sustainability Officer. She's served on the Board of Directors for the U.S. Green Building Council, Green Business Certification Institute, and Portland-based eco-districts. She has collaborated on projects with Evergreen State College, the Center for Maximum Potential Building Systems, the Rocky Mountain Institute, and U.S. Global Green. Lucia is also the author of two books, Building an Emerald City, A Guide to Creating Green Building Policies and Programs, and most recently, The Sustainability Revolutionists, Heroes and Hope for Our Planet's Future. She describes herself as a spark plug for positive change and a practical idealist. Welcome to the program, Lucia. Thank you, Terry. Great to be here with you today. So I love that you describe yourself as a practical idealist. I think that's a term that many of us can relate to, but what does it mean to you and how has that viewpoint supported your work? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I mean, it, it's a bit of an oxymoron, right? Somebody who's totally practical and somebody who's totally idealistic may seem like they're complete opposites. <laughs> but uh, it's balance. <laughs> it's all balance, right? <laughs> it's finding that happy medium, right? And for me, I have to be an idealist in the sense that I want to always have that vision of, you know, what is the kind of world. I want to live in and create and the kind of world that I live in now that I want to continue. Uh, so where am I going? What, what is the, the destination I'm trying to get to? And that's the idealistic part of me mm-hmm. and always believing that, that all things are possible and that somehow we can get there if we put our shoulder into it. The practical part is kind of applying this way of thinking to what's right in front of us. Right? So how can I make a difference in something I actually have some influence over, people I have influence over, organizations, situations, projects, building projects, whatever kind of projects they are. So kind of bringing, bringing the global down to the local and actually trying to find solutions that are doable now. And if we are too idealistic and we, you know, we want um, something so perfect. It's kind of like that saying, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We've probably all heard that before. And so I often find myself in situations where, no, I can't have what's perfect, but you know what? I can have something that's pretty darn good and is moving me in the direction of the perfect and moving me in the direction of, of the ideal. So that's, 
that's been the way I've approached most of my career in green building, working on, you know, projects that have budgets and deadlines and, you know, people that maybe are not quite on board and I'm trying to cajole them and in many instances using what I would call a charm offensive uh, to get moving in the right direction. I like that. (laughs) So, yeah, I find myself, I'm thought of as an idealist a lot of the time and I can be distracted by that. I, you know, thinking, you know, missing things that need attention. But I think the idea of being practical and idealistic is is important for the hard work that we have to do. I mean, trying to change change climate change, reverse climate change. I mean, that's bigger than any of us. We have to be able to work within a framework that um, supports real change and yet doesn't doesn't depress us along the way. Um, and that exactly that, that can be hard for some people. Yeah, finding that finding that once again that balance in the middle where you can see how urgent and huge the problems are that we need to tackle. We shouldn't be putting our head in the sand about that. But if that's all you can see, it can be debilitating and demotivating, right? Mm-hmm. So we we need to balance that with also embracing our capacity to solve the problem. And and sometimes I feel like with the amount of information we get all the time now about climate change, which is great that it's so much in the, in the dialogue and the conversation, but I feel like there's a massive amount of kind of societal and individual guilt around that yeah. um, that can really be paralyzing because we, we feel bad, you know, and we, we feel bad about what, what we've unintendedly done. I think, you know, nobody set out to create climate change. Nobody thought when the industrial revolution was taking off that, you know, we were going to be changing the entire global climate in a disruptive and very negative way. We didn't plan for that, but it was an unintended consequence. So I, I feel like that guilt is something we really need to try to release because feeling guilty all the time, you know, is not going to be very motivating to get out there and solve the problems. Yeah. Well, and if you push people towards making the change, they resist. And I think they resist out of, I think guilt has something to do with that. Fear has something to do with that. But if you can guide them towards, you know, information and then let them make up their own minds, I think that can be more powerful in many ways. Well, then a lot of the right decisions are becoming much more economic mm. so that we can actually make the best economic decision at the same time as we're, make, as we're making the best sustainability decision. Yeah, yeah. When, it all, when all that comes together, there's no question what we ought to be doing. Right, right. And with codes changing to support the things that need to happen, that also puts it to a you know, a place that there there aren't as many bad choices um, available to make or that are legal to make. I know that you've been working on climate policy for a long time. And how far do you think we've gotten from where we where we need to go? Good question. Well, there's obviously a lot more that needs to be done, but my career has been very much, in the municipal city government sector, first in Seattle, 
um, as you were saying, and then, you know, here in Austin. And so that's where a lot of the, the actions have been happening and is continuing to happen. Um, yes, there's stuff happening at the federal level also, um, especially with our current administration here in the United States. But for quite some time, you know, cities have been incredible actors in uh, making strategic moves and investments to help us with climate change. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, we're really beginning to get our arms around all this and have a much better idea of what needs to be done. Um, all of those things are not yet economically viable or you know policy requirements. But I was involved for quite a few years through my job with City of Austin with a, a global network of mayors uh, from cities that are doing a lot of work on climate change. And it was very heartening to see how much progress was being made, how much innovation was being supported. And this is an organization called the Global C40. It was originally the 40 largest cities in the world working on climate change. And it's since expanded to many other cities as well. But just from my personal experience, when I first started going to those meetings, uh, it was all staff giving all the presentations and the mayors were kind of sitting on the sidelines very quietly because <laughs> they, I don't think they really knew what to say. And in uh, the last meeting I went to was last year in Copenhagen and the mayors are giving all the presentations. The mayors are on fire. They're very articulate. They know what's going on with climate change and they know what needs to be done. And they're sharing uh, all of their best practices information. They're, they're kind of in a race to the top. And that competitiveness between elected officials is actually very useful for this. So, yes, lots more to be done. But I am very heartened by, you know, how much shift I've seen just in the last 10 years. That's that's wonderful, because sometimes we I feel like cities like Seattle and Austin are in this bubble of, you know, progressive thought and, you know, what's happening in the Midwest, what's happening in the South. Are there shifts that are visible there as well? Because, I mean, we, we got to get into all corners, right? So are, are you seeing some of these mayors come from areas that are more um, traditionally thought of as conservative? Uh, yes, I would say that's true. And also there are chiefs, there are hundreds of chief sustainability officers across the United States and across the world working on these issues, working towards um, sustainable communities, uh, combating climate change equity issues, climate resilience. So I, I think that, you know, small cities as well as larger cities and cities, there isn't a state you could point to that isn't doing some work in this area. That's that's wonderful. That's really good, good news to have and to share. Uh, I know you just recently retired from your position as Chief Sustainability Officer at the city I of did. Austin. Are you still going to be working on your own in, you know, forwarding this movement or are you absolutely oh, yes. good to hear this runs through my veins uh, <laughs> in a way that I could never stop <laughs> so thank you for asking but yes I absolutely will be continuing the work public speaking uh, a little bit of consulting volunteering with different organizations both locally but but also hopefully at you know at a more national and international level I'm on, I have been on an advisory group for the Lead for Cities and Communities tool, which is just beginning to wrap up, but I'll be continuing to kind of track that and promote the Lead for Cities and Communities tool. I'm also a, a co-chair of an advisory group for the Well 
rating system mm-hmm. um, that's also kind of focused on wellness and health for cities. So yes, I'll definitely be continuing the work. And part of that work is also through my writing. Uh, and I haven't figured out what my next book is going to be right now. I'm just kind of trying to trying to promote the two books that I have in hand, but I will be continuing to write and blog and push in any way that's available to me. That's great. That's really good to hear. Um, we, we need your voice and, and your, your energy. So what do you think is next on the policy front? Do you, do you see anything looming that, that is like bubbling up? One of the exciting areas that's kind of coming into the fore more actually in policy is around equity and diversity and inclusion. And we're seeing um, a whole layer of that being added to uh, the Federal uh, Inflation Reduction Act dollars that have rolled out to cities. So there's a lot more thoughtfulness going into how we make sure that no one is left behind as we're tackling climate change and getting into sustainability. So that's really exciting to see. I think also, you know, we have a lot of work to do on the policy front around energy. There has been good progress made, but, you know, in some of the more conservative states you mentioned earlier, uh, and oil and gas states like the one I'm in, Texas, uh, there's a lot of resistance to renewable uh, energy policy. So even though, you know, we have really good wind production and solar here in Texas, uh, we have seen a move at the state legislature to prevent us from requiring building electrification. So because, and that's partly because we're an oil and gas state. Um, They don't want people getting off of natural gas here. So uh, there's a lot to be done around that. I think there's some really exciting policy movement happening in the transportation sector around electric vehicles. So much activity there as that whole industry, you know, really we're seeing it blow up with all the different vehicles. We've got a lot of infrastructure to build out so that we have the recharging infrastructure available, you know, to actually support all those electric vehicles on the road. So I think those are really exciting areas. Uh, And one last one I think I'd mention is just uh, kind of a a circling back to a focus on natural systems and green infrastructure and parks. Um, Our state legislature here is considering a a big funding package for open space and parks. And so I think it's important to just mention those things because they're related to climate change. I mean, they create these amazing, amazing carbon sinks. They help us. Natural systems help us with, you know, tempering our urban heat islands and absorbing flooding and a lot of the adverse impacts of climate change and extreme weather. And also we've learned during the pandemic, I think very clearly how important those outdoor areas were for our health and that we needed to make sure everybody has access. So a lot more funding coming through and a lot more attention at the same time on natural systems. You're listening to the Living Shelter Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, and I'm talking with Lucia Athens, the recently retired Chief Sustainability Officer of the City of Austin and the author of Sustainability Revolutionists. Lucia, let's talk about your latest book, The Sustainability Revolutionists. Why did you decide to write this? I'm glad you asked, Terry, because... It's definitely been a labor of love. It took me seven years to get this book done. Oh my so God. There, had to be, there had to be some good reason. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one of the things in my work over 30 years now working in the sustainability field, one of the things I started noticing over the last 10 years is that we were 
not making the kind of progress I was hoping we were going to make, partly because what I saw happening is people coming around a table and we all said, we're interested in sustainability, but it turned out we really weren't talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of confusion about what it really means. And then I realized that the triple bottom line are the three pillars of sustainability, as I like to refer to them as environment, economy, and society. I started realizing that most people come at sustainability primarily from one of those. They're either all about environmental issues or they're about community and social issues, um, or they're more about kind of the economics of all this. And then we get around a table and we find out we don't really care about the same things at all. <laughs> it makes it hard to work together. Yeah. Uh, so, and I found this uh, very clearly in an experience I had working here at the city of Austin when we revised our urban farm ordinance and we had people from the urban farming community on one side of the fence and the people from the social justice community on the other side of the fence. And they were just enemies and they were not collaborating. And I was a little bit shocked at first, but then you know, I realized they're just, they want different things. The, the social justice people wanted affordable housing. They didn't want farms in their neighborhood. <laughs> they didn't care about fresh food. <laughs> well, they just didn't want it to be grown in on their street. Uh-huh. They wanted it somewhere else. So all that to say, that was kind of why I decided to write a book that attempts to educate people in kind of a different way about what sustainability really means and unpacks the three pillars in a way that that really kind of addresses what are the core values underlying each of the pillars that those people that might be the champions really care about? What are they looking for? And of course, all, always re- uh, reminding ourselves that we need to address all three of the pillars simultaneously if we're really going to achieve sustainability. And that's not always easy. Right. But, you know, that's that's really was the motivation for the book. And then I decided to use storytelling as a vehicle as a teaching tool uh, in the book, because I love stories. I remember stories that, you know, my college professors told me, and I may not remember anything else from their classes, but I remember the stories they told. And also nonfiction can be kind of tough at times because it can be very dry. And I can't tell you how many nonfiction books I've picked up and started and ran out of steam and never finished. Oh, me too. I'm with you on that. I, I have a hard time. And there's so many really good ones with lots of you know great information and thought-provoking ideas, but you got to have story to catch my attention. And I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people like that. Yeah. And this, uh, this genre of narrative nonfiction, uh, as it's called, which uses storytelling to tell true stories, it, it is the uh, number one nonfiction genre out there. Lots of people are reading it and enjoying it and wanting more. So, so yeah. And then the other thing, I guess, Terry, is that I wanted to restore a sense of hopefulness for people because most of the books out there on climate change, for example, we wouldn't necessarily use the word joy to describe those <laughs> books, right? Right. And Betty Sue Flowers, who wrote my foreword, talks in, in the foreword to the book about how the, the stories of the heroes and the hope in my book kind of help people realize that tackling the challenges are well within the realm of the possible, that there's actually a lot we can do and a lot we already have done. We often tend to just move on after we've accomplished something and we just don't even, we don't even celebrate it and we quickly forget, you know, our collective societal memory is kind of short. Right. 
How did you choose the heroes that you use in your story? Well, it, it's a, interesting because it was actually quite a process to choose. I have three main archetypal heroes, one for each of the pillars, one for environment, that's Jacques Cousteau, one for economy, that's Anita Roddick, who started The Body Shop, one of the first green businesses, and then one for society, Cesar Chavez, the uh, farm workers' rights advocate. And I didn't start out with those three. I played around with so many different possible people I could have been writing about in this book. I even uh, polled a lot of my friends and asked them who they thought would have been good heroes. I got a lot of input. I ended up landing on these three. Personally, I felt very fascinated by their stories. I grew up watching the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau with my family Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. So I was always kind of enamored of of his story. I knew about Cesar Chavez, you know, from great boycott uh, history uh, that was happening when I was a young person. And and then Anita Roddick, I only learned about kind of later on, and she's probably the least uh, well-known. But I wanted to write about people who had lived in the recent past, so they were relatable. I didn't want to go so far back in time that, you know, it was somebody that it's kind of hard to relate to. I definitely wanted at least one woman in the mix. Mm-hmm. I wanted I wanted gender diversity. I wanted, you know, ethnic diversity. And I also learned uh, a little bit about the fact that if you write about people who are no longer living, their legacy is a little more set. You know, somebody, if I was writing about somebody who is still alive, it's hard to know what may eventually happen with them. And there's also a lot of liability issues involved. <laughs> yeah. So I decided not to write about anybody <laughs> who's currently living. But people who lived recently, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's a good filter. (laughs) So you mentioned the three pillars of sustainability and the core values. So I understand each of the three pillars has three core values. Right. Can you go through those? Sure, sure. So the book starts out with Jacques Cousteau's story, really um, using those stories to explain three core values for environmental sustainability. The first one is interconnected systems. You know, really, when you study nature, you really understand in a, in a very clear way how much everything is interconnected in nature. The second core value is what I call biophilic stewardship. So that's like a love of life and knowing that, that I have a responsibility to steward that life and protect it. And the third one is, uh, we hear this term a lot, the long view understanding that things unfold in a very long timeline that uh, transcends our own lifespan. And when you think about, you know, seven generations, going back generations and forward generations, we have to take the long view and think about the consequences of our actions far into the future. Right. Like the seventh generation, for example. Exactly. So moving on to the the economic pillar, that's where I tell the story of Anita Roddick starting the body shop, uh, which was it was a big deal at the time. There were no green businesses out there, and she was kind of making it up as she went along. So the first core value under eco- economic sustainability is what I call mission to serve. What is the mission and the purpose, the higher purpose that the, this business or this organization is trying to serve beyond just you know turning a profit? So it's very important to know, like, what is our purpose? The second, um, very important in the economic realm, is what I call ethical transparency. So we must behave within ethics, and we must be transparent about how we're doing that. So there's a lot of that that comes into play with things like 
you know, products and uh, value chains and supply chains. And then the third is one that I call it creativity within limits. It's all about how do we do more with less? How do we recognize, you know, the planetary, the ecological, and all the boundaries within which we must exist and use our creativity to deliver what we're looking for as a society? So that's all about what you can also kind of think of as the power of limits. It's actually can unleash a lot of creativity when we realize we have to do something within certain limitations. Yeah, great. So third, moving on to the final, the social sustainability area, where I tell the story of Cesar Chavez and his childhood and how he grew up in a farming family and then became a migrant farm worker. It's quite a, quite a story if you don't know it. Uh, in that story and in the social sustainability area, the first pillar is nonviolent action. So we must do this work using nonviolence. There's all kinds of ways that can be interpreted, but also the action pieces. We shouldn't just be nonviolent at home with our doors closed and doing nothing. We have to act. We have to do something. The second core value is called inclusive empowerment. That's where I get into the diversity, equity, and inclusion part of this. And what I realized through my studying of this area is that the purpose behind all of this, these DEI initiatives and equity is to empower everyone so that we are all equally empowered to you know, fulfill our life purpose without limitation so that we're all on an equal and level playing field. And then finally, the third uh, and the final out of the nine core values is collective impact. Uh, so that idea that we all, if we're all kind of pulling in the same direction, we will get to where we need to go through the collective impact of all of our efforts added up together. No one person can do it alone, but if all of us act, it will make a difference and it will, it will get us there eventually. I love it. I love it. And synergy is something that I've long believed in and tried to teach people that if two things support each other, you get more than the sum of the parts. And that collective impact is a, a wonderful reflection of that. That whole more than some of the parts is part of that that systems thinking in the first one, the interconnected systems. Yes. Yeah. So actually, uh, the core values all seem to support each other too. I love you know thinking about this all together. And I think your book is is a great way to introduce, especially people who are just kind of dipping their toes in the sustainability world and mindset and giving them some wonderful reference points and, again, heroes to give them hope along the way. Terry, I should tell you, too, you know, talking about the nine core values, you know, there's probably nothing that I mentioned in there that you've never heard of before, right? They, they, some of them are familiar ideas. Right. So I didn't come up with the individual ideas myself, but I did decide to assemble them into this framework of, of nine key pieces for sustainability that really kind of have to be a part of sustainability for us to get there. So, so somebody asked me, you know, where, where did those nine come from? Um, was that, you know, something that, that was already established previously? And it was not. So bringing them all together in this way is my, my own way of thinking about it that I hope others will enjoy and share. Well, and I love how it, it really addresses ways to talk to people or think about people who are coming from different places, different values themselves. I like the idea of meeting someone where they are and then seeing where we can go together. This, this is a, a wonderful example 
of how we can how we can do that and how we can visualize that. You were talking earlier about you don't know what your next book will be. It sounds like you are interested in writing more. Do you believe writing has changed you in any way? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I'd have to say yes. I mean, for one thing, the book we're talking about now, through the exploration of the, and through the research I did on the three heroes, I learned a lot and their stories actually informed the nine core values. You know, I, I played around with a lot of different iterations of the nine core values and they really evolved through the course of writing the book and being inspired by the stories of, of the three archetypal heroes of sustainability that I was writing about. I also learned a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, out of you know the three pillars, that was my weak area, I think, in terms of my personal experience and my, uh, my expertise and knowledge. So I had to do a lot of extra reading and research so that I felt like you know I, I had kind of what I needed in my toolkit to be able to address those issues, you know, with, a, with a confidence. And so that was really enriching. I loved learning more about that piece of it and learning about Cesar Chavez and the farm workers. So I say, I'd say absolutely. Yes. And I really enjoy the writing process. And one thing I've learned through writing and through the pandemic is that I actually really enjoy alone time. <laughs> you kind of have to enjoy alone time if you're going to be a writer or it's a problem. Right, right. <laughs> and I had no idea. I mean, seven years to write a book. I, I guess you don't sit down every day and write. I mean, some people do, but you had other things. You you had a career and a family and, and a life outside of writing. So I, I can see it taking time, but that's a big commitment for someone who's thinking about writing that hasn't written yet? Well, I think that you can write something every day or at least, you know, set aside some time on certain whatever days or your good days, you know, where you can set aside a, a couple of hours maybe. And if you're thinking about writing, you know, just write. You don't have to know where it's all going. Write about something that interests you and, you know, it could evolve. It could turn into a blog. It could turn into an article. It could turn into a book. So I feel like one of the most important things for writers, the advice that I would give is don't worry about getting it perfect. Just get something down on paper. Because the other thing about writing is writing is rewriting. Editing and editing and editing, you're going to do so much editing. So don't ever worry about, oh, this sentence has to be perfect. It really doesn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I imagine how many different versions of this book do you think there were along the oh way? Oh, my God. I don't know. <laughs> Probably three or four. Or by the time I got an editor and hire an editor, there was probably about three versions. How do you know when you're done? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Too. You know, you get to a point where it's just got to be good enough because it's never going to be perfect. Right. And, you know, the minute you get the, the printed product, you find an error. You know, that's just inevitable. Uh -huh. So you, you have to, at some point, accept it's never going to be perfect. And, you know, I hope this book will have some future edition where I can go in and update some things. But once you get to the point where you've decided it's a book, you know, you do have to create a structure and an outline. And there there is a target, you know, for different kinds of books for certain numbers of words. So, you know, if it's getting too long, just know that you're going to have to cut it back because it's probably not going to be, 
you know, economically viable to produce or sell that book. So, you know, I, I would tell people hire a good editor who can kind of, you know, guide you through some of those guardrails because some of it becomes very practical. When you wrote your first book, uh, Building an Emerald City, that was when you were at the city of Seattle. Is that correct? Or when you were finishing up yes. there? Yeah, it was it was towards the end of my city of Seattle career and kind of after I was done there and I was uh, working some uh, for a design firm. That one was with Island Press, so I had a publisher for that book. Uh, this most recent book is self-published, and I would also say to any aspiring uh, writer, author out there, self-publishing is amazing. You can do so much yourself now, all the tools that are available. It's really, really cool. So don't be intimidated to try it. Yeah, well, I know finding a publisher can be a, a real job for a writer. So the idea that you can publish it yourself and have more control and ownership over the content, I think would appeal to a lot of people. You're listening to the Living Shelter Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, and I'm talking with Lucia Athens, the author of Sustainability Revolutionists. Lucia, you talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Justice is another term that I hear a lot along those, those lines. And some people say that the green building movement has left people of you know, lower income status, people of color behind because it's it's like this thing that you can add on that, you know, is like a, a bonus. And we're looking at the need for affordable housing and the need for, you know, betterment of life for everybody. How do we address these needs in, in light of the overarching issue of our climate is changing and there are going to be some huge impacts on everyone, how do we not leave people behind? It's such a challenging topic, right? But I'm so heartened that we're finally talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> and we're and even we're admitting that we don't have all the answers, but that shouldn't keep us from talking about it. I think the sustainability field kind of in general tends to be quite white. So you know, trying to make sure that we are including people from all ages, all ethnicities, uh, all gender diversity. You know, there's a lot of different aspects of diversity that we need to get our arms around. Uh, we have a green jobs initiative here in Austin that I've been very excited about that I helped launch uh, right after the pandemic uh, got started. Well, I guess it was about a year after the pandemic started. We used federal disaster recovery money uh, to focus on job training for people who had been economically impacted by the pandemic because there were a lot of service workers, you know, who lost their jobs. So that initiative is growing. It's got multi-million dollar funding behind it. It's building a job skills pipeline for people who are working in construction, solar installers, and also people that are working, kind of doing more uh, field crew work, maintaining our urban forests here in Austin, removing invasive species and so forth. So that's been that's been really exciting. Another area that we've been working on, which I think has been really interesting, is the area of climate resilience and really realizing that uh, when we have extreme weather events, 
the people who are the most negatively impacted by those extreme weather events that are being driven by climate change are low income and people of color. Uh, they have the least resources, you know, to actually be able to be prepared to respond and to bounce back. And for example, here in low-lying areas, we had uh, massive flooding events with loss of life. Those were low-income communities, people of color. Nobody else, you know, wanted to live in that area. So, and now nobody does. We've actually vacated those neighborhoods completely and turned those areas into parks and and found other homes uh, for those people. So the the displacement. Uh, that's happening in uh, cities like Austin, where there's so much growth, that is a huge issue for us because, you know, I live in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood where there's a lot of displacement. Our big project Connect, uh, which is our massive urban rail voter approved tax measure to build out urban rail, there is a significant funding package as a part of that that's focused on anti-displacement, knowing that you know when we go in and put these lines in in neighborhoods, we're displacing people and businesses. So we're trying to find ways to keep that from happening or to at least you know lessen the impact. So that's huge. Uh, and then back to the resilience piece, we've been uh, trying to, to launch these facilities, neighborhood-based facilities called resilience hubs, where people could go in the event of a disaster and get food, charge up their cell phones, get water, get information. And those are being located initially in some of our our low-income neighborhoods. Those sound like really, really good initiatives to be moving forward. And this is in the city of Austin. I'm hoping there are ways that other areas can, you know, find out information from whoever is is moving these initiatives in Austin forward to echo this in other communities. Because again, Austin is is a fairly progressive place, much like Seattle, but in Texas. I've, I've never been there, so I'm speaking from what I understand, <laughs> but there's a need for this wherever we go, wherever we look. Absolutely. And a lot of, a lot of great stuff is happening in many cities in, in the Midwest and beyond. Actually, Baltimore is a city that's done a lot with these resilience hubs uh, that I was mentioning previously. The city of Austin uh, Office of Sustainability website has really great information on a lot of these different initiatives. And another one I'll mention is we're doing a lot of work on sustainable food planning. And hmm. uh, you know, for a community like Austin, where we have a lot of wealth, it's amazing how many people are food insecure. And which means they may not know where their next uh, meal is coming from sometime in the next month. So we're we're doing a community-based planning effort to create a sustainable food plan that will focus on you know access to fresh and healthy food and also farmland preservation. That's that's wonderful. I, I'm so inspired by all these things. One of the issues in architecture. Uh, especially residential architecture, where I've been practicing all these years, is affordable housing and a need for affordable housing in these communities. And the new codes are more and more restrictive. So there's, you know, both both on the federal level and, you know, some states, like Washington State has a very ambitious energy code, which is following the 2030 goal of zero net carbon by the year 2030. And the codes have been shifted to support that and, and move this forward. But affordable housing can be a real conundrum with these new codes. Yeah. I know that there's 
there are things going on around affordable housing. And I I remember seeing something on one of your profiles online about an initiative that you're involved in. Yes, yes, I was hoping you might ask about that. Well, one thing I wanted to say before I go there is that the 2030 goal, that's really exciting and that's very aggressive. I mean, we just we just uh, updated our carbon neutral Austin goal to 2040, so that's pretty amazing, 2030. The I think the initiative you're talking about, Terry, is something called Initiative 99, and it was announced recently during the South by Southwest conference here in Austin. It's the brainchild of a really amazing guy. His name is Jason Ballard, and he has an organization called Icon. Icon is a 3D printing company that 3D prints buildings. And they've been working already on affordable housing with a really amazing organization here uh, called Community First Village, which actually a lot of affordable housing people from around the world have come to visit Community First Village. It's a permanent housing community for people who have been experiencing homelessness. So it's not temporary. They bring them in and they offer them permanent homes for as long as they want to stay. It's a, it's a tiny home community. Mm. It's a micro home community. So Icon has already been 3D printing small footprint homes as a part of Community First Village. Well, during South by Southwest, they announced this Initiative 99, which is they're offering a million dollars in prize money in an affordable design competition. And uh, I'm going to be one of the judges in the competition. I was very honored to be asked. Uh, Liz Lambert, who some people may be familiar with, who is a part of a couple of very innovative hotels here and, and started something called El Cosmico out in Marfa in West Texas. Uh, they're doing a project with her. She's one of the judges. And then uh, a really amazing architect that the audience may have heard of, Bjarke Engels, who's from Denmark, is also one of the judges, uh, in addition to the dean of the uh, architecture school here at the University of Texas at Austin. So this is going to be going on over the next year. They haven't even actually announced the ground rules yet, but you can sign up to get more information if you go to the ICON, I-C-O-N, website. Uh, you can sign up to get the announcements if you're interested in becoming a part of this and throwing your hat into the ring in the design competition. That's exciting. I'm sure some of the, the design professionals that listen in here will be eager to take part in that. There's so many things around the technology with you know the 3D printing and AI, what's going on with artificial intelligence. It's it's this whole brave new world that 10 years ago would have only been in science fiction stories. So 3D printing, I mean, to me, being an old schooler, it seems like it's like, that can't work. That's going to just <laughs> disrupt everything. But we need disruption. I mean, disruption is important to, to making change. Are icons 3D printing... Is their material actually plastic-free? Because that's the one thing that is so important to me in moving any technology forward is to leave plastic behind. That's a great question. I wish I had the answer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna find out and talk to them about that. I'm not as familiar with um, all of their materials as I could be, but I think I'm gonna be getting more familiar. One of the things that to me is exciting about their 3D printed building technology 
is that they can print in any shape. They can they can extrude out of their printer in any shape you want. So they can do curves that actually structurally are, become even stronger, those straight lines. Oh. And so it, it's going to be very freeing in terms of, you know, the aesthetic possibilities that the 3D printing technology can can deliver. As they were announcing their initiative during South by Southwest, they, they 3D printed an outdoor performance stage uh, and had a concert and a little party uh, to celebrate the design competition. And this 3D printed stage is, is all curves. It's really beautiful. Wow. How long did it take to print the stage? Do you remember? Did it actually happen during South by Southwest or was no, it done beforehand? I, I think it got finished right before. I don't know exactly how long it took, but I don't think it took very long. Yeah. I know there's there's some people in some parts of the world, I think in the desert mid, Middle East, that are doing 3D printing with non-plasticized material, so all earthen clay material. But most of the ones that I've seen are you know, they have some plastics in them. So that would be a real boon to Icon if they could develop a non-plasticized material to use for moving this forward. I'll be sure to pass that on, Terry. Thank you. Okay. So we're getting near the end of our conversation here. And something I'd like to ask all my guests is, you know, with climate change affecting so many elements of nature that we rely on for life, what might you suggest people do to become more resilient around these changes? And this can be a, you know, as small or large as you think is appropriate. Good question. You know, one of the most important things that anybody can do is get to know their neighbors. I love that. It's just so amazing to me, especially living in this rapidly changing neighborhood, as I mentioned, you know, where there's a lot of long-term residents and a lot of newer people coming in. And I am a newcomer to this neighborhood. Get out and walk around and get to know the people in your neighborhood. And, you know, that's important for building community. And it's also important when we do have disaster situations happening, because uh, one of the things that we've learned is that like in Superstorm Sandy, for example, first responders were not the first people to arrive. It was neighbors, neighbors helping neighbors. So if everybody just assumes that when a big disaster happens, you know, the emergency response is going to come help me, that's probably going to take quite a while because they're going to be completely overwhelmed. So the more you know your neighbors and the more you know, like, you know, your elderly neighbors, people who might be shut in, people who might be, you know, dependent on electricity because of health equipment or that kind of thing, it's really important for us to just really be able to know who's living uh, in our immediate vicinity. Then kind of, you know, scaling up from there, for sure, uh, have your emergency kit. I think in the Pacific Northwest, when I lived in Seattle, everybody knew about having an emergency kit and an emergency plan because it was earthquake country. And down here in Texas, it's not as familiar to people. So, you know, have your emergency plan with your family. Assume your cell phone isn't going to work. What's your meeting place? Where are you going to go? Have emergency food and water supplies available. You know, you want to take it a step further, have rainwater collection. And, you know, if you don't have a treatment system, then have, you know, a camping water treatment equipment in an emergency, you could use that, uh, have rooftop solar. And if you can afford it, have, you know, backup battery storage, what are the things that you could do, you know, to just, uh, become a little bit more capable if your utility services go down 
in a big weather event. And that's happened to us multiple times here, here in Austin over the last couple of years. So we have really, we've experienced it upfront and personal, you know, do you have a way to get around without a car? What if, what if suddenly there's the fuel supplies are interrupted? Can you afford an electric vehicle and and charge it up, you know, with your rooftop solar or how about just a bicycle? (laughs) Uh, So these things can range from the simple to the complex. Right. Well, those those are really helpful ideas, and yes, uh, the major weather events are happening more and more. There's you know stuff going on in the Midwest now, and we all, I think, are seeing that this could happen to us. So yeah, make yourself more more ready. And I love the idea of relying on community and becoming active in in your community and just getting to know your neighbors and know their names, know how to reach them if you need help or if you think they need help. We're all in this together. We are all in this together. It's never been more true. So, Lucia, where can people go to find out more information about your book and um, anything else that you think is pertinent to being able to take next steps themselves? Well, uh, I have a website. It's luciaathens.com. It's L-U-C-I-A and then Athens, just like the city.com. So you can find out more about my books there. Uh, you can find my my books on Amazon or perhaps through your local independent bookseller. And if they don't have it, ask them to order it for you. And uh, as I said, you know, the city uh, cities in the Northwest Seattle, uh, and then also Portland. We didn't talk about Portland. Have amazing initiatives going on. So check out what they're doing. Get get on their newsletters. Keep up to date on what's happening. And then please do visit our City of Austin Office of Sustainability website, austintexas.gov/sustainability. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It was great having you here. Thank you, Terry. It was really a pleasure, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Yeah. That was Lucia Athens, sharing stories and helping us learn to recognize different aspects of the sustainability movement wherever we find them. I also want to thank everyone listening in and hope you'll tune in again for more great content and inspirational guests from the world of sustainable design. The Living Shelter Podcast is a project of Board and Vellum, a multidisciplinary design firm practicing architecture, interior design, and landscape architecture for residential, commercial, and civic projects. From our studio in Seattle, I'm your host, Terry Phelan. Take care, and we'll talk again soon.